when you have no understanding of that we're all in sin and that we all need a savior and that we can't save ourselves, but that Jesus has done it for us, I think that all that burden really barrels down on yourself. And many, many doctors uh, really struggle with guilt. I mean, that the suicide rate among physicians is twice that of the general population. And I think that a lack of an understanding of where our hope lies and by whom we are saved, not by ourselves, not by our own hands, but through Christ, I think it plays a role in that despair. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Catherine Butler. Catherine is a trauma and critical care surgeon who served on the faculty of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She's written numerous times for Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition, and is the author of Glimmers of Grace, a doctor's reflections on faith, suffering, and the goodness of God from Crossway. Today, Catherine and I discuss her work as a trauma surgeon working in the ICU. She shares what it was like to be inundated with life and death situations day in and day out, how she coped with the stress of the job and eventually began to see God's grace at work, even in the midst of deep pain and tragedy, and what she saw working in a hospital at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's get started. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Oh, Matt, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I recently heard that early in the pandemic uh, last year, you felt the need to get involved and help out in some way, kind of drawing on your medical uh, background. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. What, what happened? Sure. So my background initially is as a trauma and critical care surgeon. And I stepped away from practice several years ago to homeschool my kids, um, which is a decision that was a personal one that's for another podcast, (laughs) (laughs) talking about calling and identity. Um, Bottom line is I felt convicted by Deuteronomy 6 and my family was really struggling. Oh. I, I had to make a decision. And part of that was was due to just how how much you were working. Yeah, it was context. it was I was working seventy hours a week, oh. and my husband was trying to juggle his job and the kids. And my my son has special needs that we did not recognize at the time, mm. and he was really really struggling. And the best thing for him was actually home education. He wasn't a real good fit for the school system, and was having meltdowns on a daily basis. So. Yeah. As much as I loved, you know, my, my work to the bottom of my heart, it's it felt like my calling. It was very clear that I was not able to do both. I was yeah. not able to fulfill my role of infusing them with God's word on a daily basis mm. and still do my job. And, and so I had to step away. And that's been my life for the past few years. It's been uh, ministering to them at home, ministering to our neighbors locally, and then ministering through writing. Um, but when the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, Boston was struck by a surge that was pretty significant. Uh, we had a super spreader event at the Boston Convention Center. And, and what does that mean? Like, mm, kind of give us a sense for uh, what you mean by that term. A, a super spreader yeah. event, uh, meaning that it, it spread very rapidly, and this was at a time when we did not know enough about COVID in terms of mask wearing and precautions, and so it just spread throughout the city like wildfire, oh, yeah. and the hospitals were really inundated. Uh, and, and to give you an example, the hospital with which I'm affiliated normally has 100 ICU beds, which is quite big. It's quite large capacity. What hospital is that? Mass General. Okay. And um, at the time of the peak in cases... They had 200 ICU beds filled with COVID patients alone, not counting the usual patients who come in with heart attacks and sepsis and everything else that we would normally treat, 200 just with COVID. And then an additional 300 on the inpatient floors just with COVID. So that placed a huge burden. And and this is also, I should say, to give a sense for the, the degree of the impact, Boston as I was saying before, is a, a, is a, a city that's small, but has a lot of really high hydro academic medical centers mm, right in the same yeah. vicinity that can usually handle pretty right. high acuity cases. A lot of capacity there. Yeah, but the fact that you had that 
degree of overwhelm um, in this this kind of area was tells you how high the cases spiked and how quickly. And so to try to accommodate this increased uh, volume of, of cases of very sick patients who needed ventilators, we had to open up recovery rooms and convert them into ICUs. We had to pull ventilators in from operating rooms and use anesthesia machines instead of ICU ventilators. We were really strapped. And so in the setting of this came a need for more staff. Mm. So knowing that my my role has been with my family over the past years, but also knowing that God gave me this unique skill set that I'm to steward for the common good and for his glory. Yeah. I couldn't sit at home yeah. knowing this was going on and that my partners were drowning. Mm. Um, and it never got to the point where it did, say, in, in Europe. I remember in, in Lombardy, Italy, this is one of the things that really hit me, too, is that they were so inundated that they were asking pathologists and other physicians who don't usually provide any clinical care to run ventilators hmm. and like giving them a wow. quick primer and saying, go do it. So these are people who would like be more on like on the behind the desk kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. And, and then saying pull because they were just so overwhelmed. So um, in that setting, it never got to that point, thankfully, here. Uh, but there was this sudden huge need for ICU care and knowing that that's what my specialty is. Mm-hmm. So I, I went back just for a few months to help out um, on the night shifts wow. with the in the ICUs taking care of COVID patients. So by night shifts, does that mean like all night long? Yeah, overnight. Okay. Overnight. Did somebody like from the hospital call you and ask if you'd be willing to do that? Or did you end up having to reach out and say, hey, I want to volunteer? It was more, I keep in touch with my prior colleagues. And so I was talking to them, how are you guys doing? Say, it's really bad. And one thing left to another in the conversation. And I said, okay, you know what? I can I can help. Yeah. <laughs> you know? How many hours at a time were you working then? It was a 14-hour overnight shift. Wow. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that you get used to that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Enough but years doing this. The hours are not a big deal. Was there an adjustment period? You, you know, mentioned that you'd kind of been a few years not really in that context, working in that way. Was it Was it sort of difficult to get back into that mode? It wasn't. It felt, you know, when you spend so many years devoting your your mind and your efforts and your energy to one thing, it really becomes ingrained. Mm. It was much harder for me to walk away from medicine than yeah. it felt to come back, to be yeah, honest. interesting. So it felt a lot like coming home. The harder thing was just to see the degree of suffering that this illness was causing. And I think that was really the hard thing. It was yeah. It was coming home each day and feeling sick to my stomach because... COVID's different. We, we're used to dealing with heart failure, but the patients who get the sickest with COVID just don't get better. Mm. And that's incredibly demoralizing and was very demoralizing for, you know, the, the people who have been doing this on the ground for the long term in the ICUs that are exclusively COVID ICUs is they, they come in and they do everything they know to do and they adjust the ventilators and they restrict fluids and patients just languish and they're very, very slow to improve. And Additionally, it was heartbreaking because it was very apparent that the people who are suffering the most from this uh, are the underprivileged. We saw a very high preponderance of people who are Hispanic and African-American when the proportion of those among the population in yeah. Massachusetts has flipped. I right. mean, it's it's not very high. And they were overwhelmingly the people who were coming in. And it's because of the disparities in our society, that that they were essential workers who didn't have the luxury of working remotely. Yeah, uh, They were living in situations where you had multiple generations in one household caring for each other, and so they couldn't self-isolate. You know, so I, I had one um, woman who was very sick, and I said, we need to get in touch with her healthcare proxy so we can figure out goals of care and say, how far are we going to go if she has an arrest? What's a, what's a health care proxy? Um, a health care proxy is someone who makes decisions on your behalf when you're incapacitated. Okay. And so I wanted to get in touch basically with her next of kin to say it, she's doing poorly, give an update, and say if she has an arrest, if her heart stops, what do we do and have that discussion? And the answer was her next of kin is in the ICU upstairs intubated. Oh. You know, and, and so that was... That that's, was the hard part. It wasn't even so much coming back. It was just seeing how this illness has just inflicted so much suffering on on people and on the vulnerable especially. And then also placed them in situations where they're enduring an, a, a, an ordeal that's scary and overwhelming 
and painful and they're enduring it alone because of the restrictions we couldn't have any family members yeah. there it's not like another disease where people could come and be with them yeah exactly you know and we're used to in in the icu dealing with hard sad situations and having the hard conversations about death and saying goodbye but it was so eerie because there were no oh, there were so many empty chairs at the bedside mm. you know and no one to be there while the the patient is on a ventilator and struggling to hold their hands and to update them about how their kids are doing and to put photographs on the walls. You always walk into ICU rooms and you'll have photographs everywhere that family members have, yeah. or, you know, a hand-drawn um, sketches by kids in crayons. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what you see. And there was none of that. And it was it was just harrowing. It felt it felt different, not not because I'd been away, but because the disease and the situation was so different and yeah. felt cruel in yeah. a lot of ways. I saw a picture of uh, a doctor, uh, I think in an ICU room, uh, caring for a COVID patient. This is early on in the pandemic. And it was, it was shocking to me seeing him. He was completely covered, obviously in scrubs or some kind of almost like a hazmat looking suit. Yeah. And then his face was completely covered. You could only just see the sliver of his eyes. And it, I remember it struck me as, you know, in a time when, you're suffering and having a hard time. These patients didn't even have a human face no. to see. No, and especially early on, we actually would limit the number of times you'd go in and examine someone. So the nurse was the one who was at the highest risk because she had to be there hour to hour. But the physicians would all roll by and like look through the, the glass in the doorway. So you're, you're looking at numbers and things, but you can't even connect it mm. with the person in front of you. And yeah. they're just alone in there it was really it was gut-wrenching yeah yeah and then you're a a mom and a wife and so did you have to kind of quarantine away from your family as you're working with COVID patients every day every night I basically (laughs) it was um it was kind of humorous now that I look back on it because it sounds ridiculous I would I would get changed in the garage (laughs) (laughs) I would come home take off my dirty scrubs put them in the the washer machine and go up and shower right away and then I'd stay away from them because I would work three nights in a row Okay. and I'd sleep and I'd get up and I'd go back. Yeah. You know? So you weren't like even hugging your kids I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, but I had it easy because I was only doing like stretches of nights here and there. The, the people who have been in this for the long term, I know some who sent their kids out of state for months to live wow. with grandparents because they said, I, I can't stand the idea of bringing things home. Mm-hmm. And others who, like as you say, would be stricken because they'd come home and their their kid would run up and want to hug them and they'd say no 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 please don't come near me not until I decontaminate you know yeah. and it's it just seemed to turn everything upside down yeah yeah hmm. uh, what are things in the hospital like now at uh, Massachusetts General much better much better we did have a, a brief surge um, over the holidays and I reached out to my colleagues because I'm still credentialed there. They asked me to keep my credentials hmm. until we every, people are vaccinated and we think yeah. we're over the hump. Until they this, know they don't need you yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm, I have not gone back since last summer. But um, I reached out and said, you know, can I pull back on my credentials? And they said, uh, wait till we know what's going on mm. with the variants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But thankfully, over the surge in the holiday, uh, the, during the surge over the holidays, it didn't reach anywhere near mm. the levels that we saw. And I think it's, I think it's because people really are taking the proper precautions. Masks do help. Um, social distancing really does help. And we've figured that out. And, um, as a result, we had a bit of a spike, but it was nowhere near yeah. what we dealt with. And they didn't have to open up any surge ICUs or anything like that. They were mm-hmm. able to manage. Yeah, that's so good. Mm-hmm. So let's go back a little bit then to before you stopped uh, working full time as a trauma surgeon. What, what was it that kind of got you interested in trauma surgery in general? That's that's one of those areas of work that we're so grateful that people do that. <laughs> but I think for most of us, it's kind of mind blowing to think of volunteering for that kind of work? (laughs) Um, I really loved being able to help people when they were in their most dire situation is what it boiled down to. Uh, And for me, it was tied up with ministry and with loving neighbor to know that when someone came in after having car accident 
you know, being attacked, even something like appendicitis, you know, as mm. simple as that. <laughs> but they're scared. They're in pain. And and you can be a, a, a light of grace in that moment uh, with caring for them and ushering them back to health, but also how you do it. Yeah. That you do and you, and you see them as an image bearer of God and you're with them in that moment. And that that had tremendous appeal to me. Yeah. Um, and I particularly was drawn to ICU care because that provided very rich opportunities also to speak um, kindness and, and compassion and the truth and love to families as well as mm. patients themselves because so much of what we deal with in the ICU is really hard and it's often the, the patients often cannot speak for themselves so usually on ventilators but the families are often there uh, as I alluded to before and you develop relationships with them and try to guide them through mm. uh, what's happening and see how you can love on the patient and love on the families as well. Yeah, yeah. I want to return to that too, that dynamic of sort of personally investing in the patients and their families, and, and I'm sure how hard that can be at times. Uh, but one of the things that you, you note in your book is that while you were still training, before you had fully finished all of that, um, you write, quote, a single night's work in the emergency department <laughs> shattered my belief in God. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could just explain what happened there and what you meant by that. Yeah. Um, so I should give a little bit of background to say that I did not grow up in the church, and I didn't. Christ did not bring me to Himself until I was thirty years old. Mm. Um, and so I had a, an idea of God that was rooted more in sentimentality than in scriptural truth. Um, but. What I, I think what happens to many people when they're confronted with issues in the hospital and when they don't have, even when they do have a clear idea of faith, to be honest with you, um, the hospital confronts you with really hard issues of life and death and suffering and the meaning behind it all and very little context for how to work it out. Mm. And so in my case, um, I was halfway through my surgical residency and my program where I trained, which is also Mass General, uh, was famous for having this rotation uh, where our job midway through our residency is we would do 24-hour shifts in the emergency room. And our job was to initially manage and triage everything surgical that came into the ER for that 24-hour wow. period. It was you and, and a junior resident. Huh. And so it was a fantastic learning experience, to be honest, and the training was phenomenal because you would deal with traumas, but you'd also deal with um, intra-abdominal sepsis and bowel obstructions and people coming in with a cold foot because they'd thrown a clot to their foot. I mean, it was a huge variety and and it was really like you being thrown into the fire um, and very unique. But I had no real concept of God before, but I just kept thinking over and over, you know, Lord, how could a God be good if if this is allowed to happen? And how could there be such evil that people could look at someone who's living and breathing and has dreams and hopes like we all do and see no value and be willing to take that life? Um, and I, I've been up for, you know, 36 hours, something like that after this point the next morning and should have gone home, but I was so stricken that I actually drove two hours from home and uh, went out along the Connecticut River and stopped on a bridge there and stood out above the water. And it was October, October, New England. So it was this beautiful day, you know, and the the mountains were all lit up in reds and oranges. And I stood on the, the bridge and I tried to pray, which I wasn't in the habit of doing. Um, and no words came. You know, and if I had known Christ and if I had been immersed in Scripture, I should have known not to look for God out on a bridge two hours away. Uh, but when no words came to me and I didn't understand, I decided he didn't exist. Hmm. You know, and that so that's just my own path of witnessing that trials in the hospital can really bring you to your knees hmm. and make you doubt God's goodness. Um, And I know I'm not alone in that struggle.
I would imagine anyone listening, even strong Christians would say, I think seeing something like that just once could potentially really shake my faith. Yeah. So, so how did God bring you through that uh, to a place where you are now? Because he's so gracious. <laughs> I'm going to cry. I'm sorry. Um, so I actually struggle with depression uh, very deeply after that point. You know, I think often of one of my favorite books to, to teach to uh, teenagers is Jonah. Because they all think it's about a big fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you dive into it and they realize, no, there's so much more. But I always think about how he ran from God and was so blind. And the only moment when he finally turns to pray is when he's in the belly of the fish in the deep dark. And that that's when finally mm. he, it stirs him. Yeah. And I realize that's what the Lord was doing for me, too. I was brought very low and I had no place else to look but up to him. And he confronted me with his mercy and his grace a year later when I was mired in this state of just existing but not really living. Mm. And I was doing my ICU fellowship where I was just doing ICU every day (laughs) for a year. And, um, I cared for a gentleman who I call him Ron in the book and uh, he had had an operation and afterwards had an event and went into cardiac arrest his heart stopped and he received CPR for a prolonged time and they were able to restart his heart but he suffered pretty significant brain injury from the loss of oxygen during that time and his uh, his prognosis was really poor like his Exam. His physical exam was terrible. We had uh, multiple MRIs that looked awful. That looked just. It was like looking, like almost like the brain had been covered with like a gray cloak. It just so much of it had the tissue had died. And neurologists thought that the best that he would do would be to maybe open his eyes and track, but not be able to understand or communicate ever. Uh, and certainly not be able to go back to the life that he once knew. He was a, a big Italian guy who had a huge laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and his family was really struggling with this, as you can imagine any family would. Uh, and they would stand beside him and, and they'd ask questions and they'd hope. And they'd always pepper me with questions. Have you seen any difference? You know, and, and my heart broke for them. But then one day, his wife, they they loved cheesy 80s tunes, and, and their their song was um, Tiffany's version of I Think We're Alone Now. And so one day, I'm working in the ICU, and I hear his wife belting out <laughs> Tiffany from his room. Um, and I go in, and she's, she has hung a cross above him that's about the size of an avocado, <laughs> and she has another one around her neck. And I say, everything okay? And she said, you know, Dr. Butler, I was praying and praying last night, and God told me he's going to be okay. And I thought to myself, knowing the state that I was in, I'm like, this is heartbreaking, because I don't think he's going to be okay. Yeah. And I also don't think the God to whom you're preaching is, to whom you're praying is real. In my arrogance, that's what I thought. And she said, nope, I know it. You'll see. And the next day... They start yelling my name across the ICU. Dr. Butler, come here, come here. And they say, he moved his toe when we asked him. And I still thought, gosh, this is this is just, I feel so sorry for this poor family. Yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, I know it's, it's easy to get your hopes up. It's common to have reflex movements. That's just from the spinal cord. It doesn't mean his brain is improving. And she said, no, it's not what this was. She got mad at me. She's like, watch. You know, she actually asked me first. I call, I yelled my I yelled his name to his ear. He didn't respond. She did, and then he moved his toe. And I said, I still didn't. And you saw it. That I time. saw it, but I still didn't put credence in it. And then the next day, he opened his eyes. And then the day after that, he started to blink to command. We'd say, mm. "Blink your eyes for yes," and and then he started to be able to move his hands. And then a couple weeks later, he had made a full recovery and was sitting up in a chair 
and was pointing to his feeding tube and asking for filet mignon. Hmm. And it was it was a full recovery when it shouldn't have been. You know, and so as clinicians, we said, oh, it's an outlier. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what, what are other doctors who aren't Christians say about that? Rejoicing and happy, but just thinking, oh, wow, this must be one of those rare cases. Yeah. But I couldn't ignore the fact that I had witnessed this, and it was in response to prayer that she had prayed and, and received this answer from the Spirit to say he will be okay. Hmm. And then there it was. And so that, that moment, God broke through and used that moment to at least open my eyes to the the truth that for how much we know in medicine and how much we lean upon our scientific protocols, that there is something at work that's so much bigger and greater than any of our hmm. our studies could capture. Yeah. And after that point, I started then to dive into study. And in my arrogance and ignorance, I figured because I was a nominal Christian growing up that I knew Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I actually studied the Bhagavad Gita and Buddhism and the Quran and went to all of these you other... You kind of skipped over Christianity. I did. I did. Because I said, oh, no, I just I dismissed it. You know, and then when I, when I read all these other texts, what I kept coming away with over and over again was that salvation for all of them was something that we had to accomplish ourselves, which I'd seen enough in the trauma bay to know that we couldn't. Because I'd seen people from all walks of life, all different statuses, all different levels of accomplishment come through those double doors on a stretcher dying and knew that there was something at work in the world. And I didn't know enough to call it sin at that point, but that there was something at work in the world that corrupted our hearts that we could not fix by ourselves. And so my husband encouraged me. He had come to faith about a year before and he encouraged me to read the Gospels and then Romans. And then that was when it really hit home. And God just opened my eyes to who he is and his incredible love for us. That he would send his son to suffer on our behalf so that we might know him. Mm. And that whatever the reason for suffering, it's not because he doesn't love us. Because he's endured it himself mm, yeah. uh, and it was so it was really the gospel just woke me up <laughs> yeah yeah i mean are there other examples then in the, the the months and years that followed as you continued to work in the icu uh where you saw glimmers of god's grace oh yeah that kind of show forth even in the midst of a very dark and difficult kind of context yeah absolutely i think I think it's important to remember, too, to, to try to glimpse his hand. It's very difficult sometimes because all you see is the despair and the tragedy. And I, I think to be able to perceive the moments when he's really at work and showing his kindness to us, we have to remain rooted in his word. We have to remember who he is and what he's done because sometimes in the day-to-day you can't understand. But I, I can think of... Um, a kid who came in, another teenager, who had been stabbed in the chest. This is another one stabbed in the chest. But he uh, came in, and initially he also had no pulse. Um, and when I opened his chest in the ER, he had a stab wound to his right ventricle, the front of the heart. And um, his the sac the pericardium, the sac around his heart was tense with blood. When I opened up the pericardium and took the clot out. He got his pulse back, and then I repaired the hole, and we got him to the operating room and um, stopped So all that more. happened before the all operating happened, room? Yes, all this happened. <laughs> yes. That's probably not it's the normal chaos. way it's supposed to work? This is, what, this is what you do only if someone comes in without a pulse. Okay. Normally, you want it to be controlled. This is a last-ditch effort to yeah, save a life. Right. Heart surgery, normally, yes. We go into the operating room. We put out drapes, and it's a very long production. Yeah. This is reserved to save a life in the most extreme of circumstances. And it often does not work. It it works only if, really for patients who've had penetrating trauma, meaning a knife or a bullet, not say a car accident mm. where the damage is often really diffuse. Yeah. Um, and it only works in about 30% of those cases that mm. people actually survive this. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so this was one of those cases. And so, yeah, repaired, repaired the whole... Got him to the operating room and then 
took a look around and shaped, fixed some more bleeding and everything. And it was one of these really tragic scenarios where I called his aunt, was the next of kin, and had told, you know, I, pick, I she picks up the phone and he's like, what did he do now? And he uh, was a kid who was really astray. It turns out he'd been living on the streets. He was estranged from his mom. He was really lost. And um, I saw him in follow-up, and he was wearing clean clothes and was very put together. Mm-hmm. And he told me, um, you know, I, I want to do what you guys do. It's like I, I want to help people the way you guys help me. So he'd reconciled with his mom and was back living at home. He was going back to school and he wanted to be a nurse. And I thought about that and I thought, this is a kid. You know, it's a horrible tragedy that this boy got stabbed. But God provided for him because he'd been lost and astray. God brought him to the ER in the nick of time because his heart rate had stopped you know, in the field. And so if he had gone much longer, he wouldn't have survived. If the paramedics had gone to a different hospital or been any slower, a minute slower in getting him to us, he wouldn't have survived. The fact that he survived the procedure I did, which 70% of people don't, you know, all of that was God's provision Mm. and realizing that he used this moment that could have been so tragic and was at work through all of it to help give this kid a chance yeah so you see moments like that where you realize no lord thank you i I know that you are you are present and you remain with us yeah and you are good yeah even with that perspective was it hard at times though to deal with the emotional toll that caring for people in those kinds of conditions had on you oh of course of course and i think i think it's particularly hard uh for anyone not just not just physicians, but even for patients and for loved ones of patients to be dealing with these encounters in the hospital, you know, whether you're enduring illness yourself or you're caring for someone, um, because it's bringing you face to face with suffering and grief and really hard questions. And in a setting that is stripped from any dialogue about spirituality, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a secular system. Um, professionally, we don't talk about God or spirituality. Is that something that you're, you weren't allowed to do? Could you bring that up yourself with a patient who is uh, expressing some kind of fear about what's going to happen to me if I die? What would, what were you allowed to do in that context? It's not even so much allowed to do as, as much as what's culturally you're trained to do. Mm. You know, so we're, we're meant to be very objective um, and not impose anything upon, upon patients. And I think that's appropriate that we don't impose. But there are times I think we also abandon where people are struggling with some very real questions of where am I going to go when I die? You know, and we have resources in the hospital. We have chaplaincy who does a fantastic job. But the studies that have been done looking at spiritual questions that are raised among cancer patients in particular is the study I'm thinking of. And then the responses of physicians show that even though a high proportion of people um, with terminal illness will raise spiritual questions, the most common response among doctors is silence. <laughs> and they, on- huh. they only will refer to chaplaincy in a very small percentage of cases and usually only in the last two or three days of life among patients who are on a ventilator already and can't converse. Wow. So I think in our reluctance to impose our values on other people, we also block people off from having discussions and, and obtaining this kind of support when they're really struggling. a story about this time when I think you were still in the end of your residency, you had interns working with you, and they made a, a kind of a, 
humorous video, sort of making, <laughs> joking a little bit about how focused you were and maybe a little bit how kind of cold yeah. you had become and how you were interacting with other doctors, perhaps and even patients. And you write, quote, I'd learned to prioritize efficiency over tenderness mm-hmm. and hard, cold data over the content of people's hearts. And I, you're speaking there as a, as a believer even. And I guess I just wonder, was there anything behind that, namely that almost as like a defense mechanism for doctors that there's a a reluctance to get too emotionally involved with patients just because you're seeing so much tragedy all the time. Uh, Was that, has that ever been a challenge uh, in in your work? That is a a really astute insight. Um, I, I think there definitely is that sometimes there is, we don't know how to handle and process what we're seeing and what we're feeling. And so you, you keep a distance I, I think more commonly in my own case, it was driven by the pressures of trying to do the work well. Yeah. Uh, the system is set up such that efficiency is really prized and precision is prized. And so when you have 40 patients to see by 730 in the morning, wow, it becomes impossible. How is that possible? Yeah, you do it, but you do it the way I was depicted in the video, <laughs> you know? And and so you wind up, ha- the system is set up to create barriers in a way. And you yeah. have to really step outside of that and make a point of, okay, if I'm going to be rushing this morning, I'm going to make a point of going back to that patient and really checking in with them later. You know, you had to make an effort outside of the norm that the day allows. And it's just so busy that oftentimes people just can't do it. But I think you're I think you're right and you're really onto something in terms of the struggle with how do I handle any more grief and I don't want to get too close because I don't want to deal with the pain afterwards. Yeah. Like how do you go bad home outcome? after a bad day and and talk with your kids and play with yeah. your kids? I mean that that that's always struck me as a pretty amazing feat in and of itself. Um it really helps to have a supportive family. You know, my husband was always very incredibly understanding and he couldn't talk shop with me but he listened mm. and he listened well and I, th- I think for those of us who are in a position of um, partnering with and loving those who are working in healthcare, especially right now with the pandemic with people being so burnt out I think it's just very important to be to be patient and to be loving and to remind people of who they are in Christ and the hope that we have in Christ because yeah. without that I think the tendency to despair is very high. And I I think there should be an awareness, too, of praying for physicians because they often struggle with really severe feelings of guilt and they don't have any framework for atonement if they don't know Christ Mm -hmm. because it is impossible for a doctor to do everything right all the time. Even though that's what society foists upon them, and, and there's this consumeristic approach often to medicine where, okay, right. I've got this problem, your job, like like almost like they're mechanics. I'm paying you, know? you a lot of money. Right, so exactly. You perform what I... Exactly, but, but you can do a perfectly appropriate by the book operation and the person's wound can still fall apart because they've got diabetes and they smoke and there's all these other things and it has nothing to do with your operation. You still have a bad outcome. And also sometimes you can just make mistakes because you're working incredibly long hours and you're exhausted and you're strained and you have all this emotional strain that we've been talking about. And so I I can remember um, one, it hit me in particular, we have this thing called, it's M&M, which is not, nothing to do with the candy. It's not cute. (laughs) Morbidity and mortality conference. Well, that's a very different thing. Yes. (laughs) It's it's like this dreaded weekly conference that every specialty has where you get together and you talk about the complications and the deaths huh. and review them with the Things whole... Things that went wrong. Yeah, and review them with the whole department. And so it's meant for educational purposes and for quality purposes and to try to help with patient care. It's very important. But as you can imagine, it's wrought with anguish a lot of times. And I can remember this fantastic resident who was just a superstar and so hardworking and so compassionate. And I remember her getting up and talking about this case. It was another bad trauma. I, th- I don't remember... I think this was actually a car accident. This wasn't a penetrating and had had multiple injuries and was doing badly from the moment they hit the door and is pretty clear from my view that they wouldn't have survived. But the poor resident, when she was up there, like she started to cry 
And she was convinced that the patient had died because she didn't call for the right OR table ahead of time. Mm. And so there was a delay and having to switch the table over. And it really would not have made a difference with all the the severity of the injuries here. But I think but she was just devastated by it. And I, I think that when you have no understanding of that we're all in sin and that we all need a savior and that we can't save ourselves, but that Jesus has done it for us, I think that all that burden really barrels down on yeah. yourself. And many, many doctors uh, really struggle with guilt. I mean, the, the suicide rate among physicians is twice that of the general population. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's it's been studied and it's twice. And so, and I think that a, a, a lack of an understanding of where our hope lies and by whom we are saved, not by ourselves, not by our own hands, but through Christ, I think it plays a role yeah. in that despair. Yeah. Wow. I'm struck that there's, it's got to be so complicated because there's probably a lot of misplaced guilt, like you were saying, but then we are human and fallible. We actually do make mistakes that have grave consequences. And that even more so would be something that if you don't have Christ, it's how do you escape from that? Yeah. And and part of the, uh, the overwhelm in the hospital of, of, which bleeds into what we were talking about of not being with the patient present in the moment, but worrying about the next thing in the work. Part of that arises from this fear mm. of doing something wrong yeah. and hurting somebody. There's this perpetual, I can't relax ever. I have to always be on point because if I do, it could have horrible ramifications. Yeah. There's no forgiveness. Yeah, right. I wonder if maybe you could speak to two types of people uh, as we close our conversation. The first is somebody who is currently in the hospital and suffering from some kind of ailment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe the prognosis for the future for them is is not good. It's just a lot more pain. It's a very slow recovery. Maybe they're, they're likely never going to leave the hospital. Uh, what would you say to the person like that who is struggling with uh, not just discouragement, but maybe even a level of dread mm-hmm. and depression uh, at, at what's face, what they're facing right now? Oh my goodness, you know, and I think it's, um, I think looking to the Psalms can really help in these kinds of scenarios because what you see through the Psalms is that there is a biblical real premise for lament, you know, that sin is not what we're meant to be and death is its wages. And so it's appropriate to cry and it's appropriate to be upset and, and to even ask questions of God, of why, you know, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you leave me? Yeah. Why have you turned your face from me? Um, you know, have has your compassion burned away in your anger? You know, all of these questions are things that the psalmist would ask. So there's a premise for that. And there's a premise for our tears. Job's first response when he was so afflicted was to cry. And... Yet what you see throughout the Psalms, which I love so much and which I've found to be a lifeline, mm-hmm. um, is that they then turn and they remember who God is and they praise him for who he is. You know, they say, you are holy. Mm-hmm. Um, you are my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. They remember him. And then they remember what he's done. You know, and through the Psalms, it's, usually remembering his provision for them during the Exodus, saving them from slavery and providing them manna from heaven. But we have also the blessing, the side of the cross, to see what he's done for us in Christ, which is the greatest hope of all that the patriarchs placed their hopes upon but didn't see the fruition of. Mm, You know, so I think think it's perfectly appropriate to lament and for people to know that, yes, you should it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve and to to be afraid. That's all normal. But to cling with all your heart and mind and soul to the God who has you in his grip even now and has a plan for you. And from Romans 8, 28, we'll work through this, even this, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which includes you if you know Christ. You know, so... I think it's just key also for us as the body of Christ when we're walking alongside our brothers and sisters 
to be present with them and to remind them that they're loved and to pray with them and for them and to walk with them uh, during such moments I think is so key because it can be really hard to forget what we know and proclaim in church when we're tethered to a bed in a hospital room instead. Right. Well, that was my second category of person Mm. that I I thought you could speak to a little bit for the person who has a loved one who is uh, that first type of person. They're in the hospital. They're suffering in some way. Uh, You know, you've, you've described all these experiences you've had in a hospital context, caring for people who were seriously uh, hurting in some way. uh, And even people who died, I think, for the average listener probably to us right now, they might have that experience of being with somebody as in the hospital in a really serious condition or mm-hmm. watching them die mm-hmm. uh, once or twice in their lifetime. Uh, and so that's a very scary and overwhelming thing that maybe feels like too much to bear. So what would you say to the person who who does have a loved one and wants to support them, wants to love them, but maybe feels a level of fear or just mm-hmm. like, I don't know if I can do that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fear in terms of being able to support them and not knowing what to do? Or? Yeah, or just fear of, of witnessing that kind of suffering, being being so close to that level of suffering yeah. um, where it, it just feels like it might be too much. Um, I think I think it is important to know your, your limits. I want to at least make that um, disclaimer, that if, if you think that it's going to be too much for you to endure and witness... Uh, then that's that's okay, <laughs> and and you can still pray for someone and support in ways that are maybe not so hands on, and I think that's okay. Um, but if if we're talking about just how to reconcile things and how to go forward, I think knowing first and foremost that while it's appropriate to be scared and normal to be scared, um, I find great comfort in my patients in this regard is knowing that God knows them by name. And that their identities as his image bearers doesn't change based upon their illness or even based upon impending death. And that he knows every hair on their heads and he is the one who formed them in the womb before their mother even knew they existed. And he loves them. And that he will work for good because it's who he is. That his... His steadfast love never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. Um, and his mercies are new every morning. You know, but I, I think really just leaning into the fact that they are still within God's grip. Mm. And that in coming alongside someone during such time, it is a beautiful ministry of mercy in a beautiful way to live out our call to love neighbor as Christ has loved us. Um, to say... I'm going to set aside what I want and what I need to be with you right now as you need me to be, uh, I think is a beautiful way to love neighbor. And so, um, and that the Lord sees that too and and says, well done, faithful servant. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to have comfort that Christ has already overcome and that these, these moments in the hospital are so anguishing because it's sin and and the price for which Christ gave it you know Christ gave his life for us because this is such a horrific situation that's why he came in the first place and so while we despair we also look and say yes he has already done it he's already triumphed and death is swallowed up in victory through him so this is not the end and we can cling to the promise that when he returns in the new heavens and new earth, he will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no death and no pain and all this will be wiped away. So while it's right and normal to grieve, we also have a tremendous hope. Yeah. Do you feel like that hope for a new heavens and new earth, mm-hmm. and full redemption, is that, do you think, maybe more real to you? Oh, yes. In part because of your experiences? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, because I see how direly we need it. And and I also, when I, when I consider all the people whom I've seen 
I've witnessed in terms of, of their suffering. I also then just think back to the cross, knowing what that Christ willingly endured the same for us. And what it, what an astonishing manifestation of God's love that 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 is that He would willingly endure all the same physical, but far beyond the physical. We're talking about emotional pain that He endured that on a cosmic level with all of God's wrath bearing down upon him and that the father that he'd known since before the universe began with whom he'd been in this loving fellowship with this agape love the likes of which we have never experienced that he would willingly be cut off from God in that moment you know so I I see that he was willing to endure suffering beyond what we even have out of love for us and it just provides such hope and I can't help but praise the Lord Katie thank you so much for talking with us today and uh, for giving us not just a glimpse into the life of a trauma surgeon and the realities that that uh, that entails but even reminder of the hope that we all have in Mm -hmm. the midst of even the darkest pain and suffering in this life uh, that there is a hope that we can cling to amen thank you very much Matt That was Catherine Butler on seeing God's goodness and mercy as a trauma surgeon. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Glimmers of Grace, a doctor's reflections on faith, suffering, and the goodness of God, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.